the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss the misinformation loop of social media. And then we're joined by author and friend Karen Swallow Pryor. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. On this Tuesday afternoon, we've got a great show ahead of us. Sometimes it's hard to even know how to wrap our minds around world events, but there's two major things in the news in the last week or so that that are not uh, in the United States, but couldn't be any closer. <laughs> you mm, know what I mean? Right. Yes. Uh, the first is this story out of Haiti uh, with the assassination of the president Crazy. in his private home. Unbelievable. Which is just wild. And you were pointing out to me that one of the people behind it uh, was actually an evangelical pastor uh, in Florida, uh, who is believed, he said he's quote on a mission to save Haiti from hell, according to associates. Uh, there's the, the, a number of people involved in this is crazy. Uh, and now there's a lot of unrest. I don't know if you've been following this, but there, some level they don't even really agree on who should be in charge now. Yeah, I, I've been following it a little bit. And that's the part that stood out to me. We said before that this one of the men tied to the assassination. Christian Emmanuel Sanon. He's 62 years old, an evangelical pastor. So he really believed this was like part of his mission from God. And I, you know, there seems like there's a lot of unrest right now. I just want to say for the evangelical pastors out there, probably assassination attempts are not the right move, but (laughs) I don't know what it's like to live in Haiti. So this is a call for all of us to remember to pray and pay attention to what's happening. Yeah, it's good to know what's going on here. It also makes me think of places like Food for the Poor who uh, Mm -hmm. are good friends who deal with these types of areas and trying to get humanitarian aid to people. And then there's what's going on in Cuba. And again, I'm like, what exactly is happening in Cuba? We know Cuba, you know, super close to Florida, but is a communist nation, is a communist island. And so we have a little bit of audio just to kind of catch us up on what's going on in Cuba. Thousands taking the street of Havana and at least 14 other cities in protest over the weekend, demanding an end to the 62-year dictatorship and protesting the lack of food and COVID vaccines. They were the biggest protests in decades in a country with tight police control and surveillance on dissidents. Demonstrators attempted to broadcast the protests live with their cell phones, but Cuba's authorities cut Internet service on multiple occasions. Yesterday, NBC News reported that streets of Havana were quiet overnight and There was a heavy military and police presence. There were also pro-government groups in the streets in sections of the city where protesters clashed with the police earlier yesterday. And so, Aubrey, what stood out to me uh, is, A, you've got people rising up, which is quite the dangerous thing to do, especially in a communist nation. Right, exactly. But also the idea of the government turning off the Internet, like just kind of 
cutting that the internet out is to wild. Me, like just just cutting off access to communication, it feels. I mean, you know, we're so American. Like that just feels like that would never happen right. here. That is so unjust. That is so wrong. But that's the reality of a communist government in Cuba, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people down in Florida, uh, you know, in the Miami area, who still have loved ones in Cuba, mm. are kind of put uh, pressuring the Biden administration to do something yeah, and yeah. saying, "Hey, that's you know, what's going on." And so these are both stories that, again, not in our nation, but basically just off our of our shores. Yeah, right. certainly our neighbors. That's right. That's just right. off of our shores that I do think uh, require our attention and also require our prayers. Uh, all right. So I want to also I found this article at NBC News and I just found this interesting. It says this on TikTok, which you are getting you are just immersed in TikTok, I know. But on TikTok. <laughs> Uh, audio gives new vir- uh, virality, virality uh, to misinformation. It says the Institute for Strategic Dialogue analyzed 124 TikTok videos featuring vaccine misinformation mm. that garnered more than 20 million views and 2 million likes, comments and shares. Here's basically the point of the article. Uh, they're talking about vaccine misinformation, but really then it expands to all information. And this idea of the misinformation or the bubble, the the, the loop yeah. that social media is, because they're saying as it comes to uh, the vaccine here, they're saying that just these 124 TikTok videos have been seen by 20 million people, like by 2 million people. And so it starts to give you the idea, whether it be TikTok or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, mm-hmm. it gives you the idea of that it doesn't really matter where it starts, that once something gets going, it can really create a narrative or or a belief system. And then people just start sharing it within their own like-mindedness, kind of this bubble. It really does start to explain things like, you know, vaccine hesitancy or, um, you know, things about the election or other things. You start to understand uh, sometimes I think we laugh and we we undersell the role that social media plays in creating, not just in promoting, but in creating the dialogue going on in our society right now. I know recently I, I had a conversation with a woman who I, I normally don't ask people if they've been vaccinated because I don't you know, you don't want to put anyone in an awkward situation. But she was talking about some of her fears around COVID returning. And so it just sort of slipped out of my mouth. Oh, well, have you been vaccinated? Because my thought was, <laughs> well, you shouldn't be afraid if you've been vaccinated. But she said, no, I have not been vaccinated. I've been watching all of these TikTok videos about oh, wow. how scientists don't know what's in the vaccine. And it was this moment for me like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, I didn't start an argument with her. I said, oh, this sounds very stressful and hard. I'll be praying for you. But I was thinking, one, you can't get your science from TikTok. okay? Mm. and two, scientists do know what's in the vaccine. So all that to say, you're right. Like people are going to social media to get their science, to get Mm. their truth, to get their religion, religion, (laughs) to get their like uh, point of view. And um, I you know, it's scary how powerful that is. And I don't think we have to be afraid, but I do think we have to be wise where we get our information and how we make our decisions. Well, that's well put. We've talked many times about the movie, The Social Dilemma, and I'd encourage yeah. you to go watch it if you haven't. And I think the answer uh, when it comes to social media, and we've said this before, but it it, it is worth repeating, 
is where are you getting your stuff from? Like if yeah. you're only watching people who are sharing on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, Instagram or TikTok, one very um, one uh, opinion, one slice of whatever it is you're discussing politics, whether it be, uh, you know, um, the vaccine, whatever else it might be. I would encourage you, you got to get outside of your bubble. And that takes yeah. a lot of work, especially in the social media. How, Aubrey, with the little time we have left, how do we even do that? How do you make sure that you're getting, whether it be social media or just news, kind of a, a broader perspective than even the people you might agree with? Yeah. And I don't know if I do a good job of this, to be honest, but I think, again, this is a call for all Christians and all people. We have to we have to get our news, make our decisions in community. What I mean is like, talk to someone else about this who's not yeah. necessarily in your same bubble, but isn't in a human being, not someone on TikTok that you know, that you love, that you trust. Like talk to your neighbors, talk to a doctor, talk to um, someone else in your community, your pastor, your small group friend. Like, hey, I heard this. What do you guys think about this? And just like do the work in community. And then I also think practically speaking, like go to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Mm -hmm. Go to some of the, the places, uh, some of the scientists that actually are reputable know what they're talking about. And um, don't be afraid of that. Because I, th I think sometimes there's also that fear that like, well, I can't get good information even from the scientists because they all have agenda. Do the work to find the scientists that are presenting facts, you mm. know? Mm. Yeah. And, and use TikTok and those types of things for what they're good Entertainment. For. Yeah. Entertainment. Entertainment. Yeah. And I always said Facebook is only good for sharing pictures of your of your friends and your cats. <laughs> like, other than that, <laughs> let's just cut it. Well, anyway, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Karen Swallow Pryor. She is author and research professor. Uh, we're going to talk to Karen about her last two um uh, columns that she wrote, her opinion columns, one dealing with systemic racism, the other dealing with social media. What we were just discussing, mm. Karen, is oh, whether you agree or disagree with Karen, she is always uh, a great listen and a great follow. And we're going to ask her what it's like to be an internet meme. We're going to ask her that question. Can't wait. Coming, up, coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And Aubrey, uh, you and I have joked that there are some guests that we have who we feel like are legitimate friends now. They come on often when we ask and uh, are always enjoyable. And one of those people is a research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. That is Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, how are you doing today? It's a hot, humid day in, in Virginia, but um, <laughs> otherwise, I'm great. Good. I Good. Uh, hey, before we jump in, as you said, you're from Virginia. Before you, we jump in, though, uh, for people who haven't heard you on before, could you just reintroduce yourself so they can get to know you a little bit? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I am a uh, research professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I teach primarily English classes and have done that for a couple of decades um, at my there and at my previous institution, Liberty University. And I write books and write mm -hmm. columns and I tweet way too much. <laughs> <laughs> I was just telling Brian earlier today that I'm I'm a little jealous of people who can tweet as prolifically as you do because I feel like my brain just doesn't work in tweets. 
And so I, I don't think you can ever tweet too much. You've done well. Good job, Karen. Thank you for that. Uh, well, in, in my defense, can I, you yes. know, my, my area of specialty is 18th century British literature, <laughs> which is known for its very like succinct, aphoristic oh, language. Oh, so, okay. So Alexander Pope would have loved Twitter. Oh, that's that, awesome. That's my defense. <laughs> I love that so much. That is fantastic. Um, so Karen, you recently wrote an article that just has a fantastic title. Don't believe in systemic racism. Let's talk about the sexual revolution. Tell our listeners what in the world you're writing about there. Wow. Yeah. So this, uh, article appeared in my newest column at Religion News Service, um, and it has blown up a little bit. And it's, it's funny because some people are just thinking it's really illuminating. Um, you know, some people disagree with it, but other people are like me and just saying this just seems so obvious. Mm. <laughs> and like, and to me, it just seemed very obvious um, because, you know, but we all know that there's a lot of controversy around critical race theory and one of its um, core concepts, which is systemic racism, which is not, you know, that idea has been around for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, it's the idea that racism isn't just an individual attitude or belief. It's also something that becomes part of the culture, whether it's through the laws or through movies or songs or pop culture or just attitudes. And that it seems obvious to me that that kind of thing would exist. Um, and so it really, this idea occurred to me about a year ago, but it took me this long to write. Um, the sexual revolution that we, you know, we as Christians, especially conservative Christians, which is my community, you know, we decry this all the time. But we see its effects everywhere, not just in the law, but in films and movies mm -hmm. and songs and every, the mall. You can't even go to the mall without seeing something that would have shocked yeah. our grandparents. And so obviously sex, sexual sin is an individual sin. We believe that as Christians, but it's also in the culture there. It's, it's part of, it's become part of our culture. And so those two, I, I don't understand why the same people who, who decries the sexual revolution mm. are so tend to be the same ones who are so resistant to the idea that, that racism can kind of be part of the culture and we may not even be aware that we're mm. uh, perpetuating it. Fascinating. And you bring up in the article, you say at one point, one need not embrace critical race theory. And then you say, I certainly don't in order to recognize that systemic racism exists. It does feel like culturally, at least the people I talk to, we've linked critical race theory to uh, rate. Like if you acknowledge one, you acknowledge the other. But if you don't acknowledge one, then you reject the other and help people understand why, how you can say mm -hmm. I reject critical race theory or parts of it. Uh, while still believing this is an issue. Because right now, increasingly, I it feels like people aren't able to separate those two mm -hmm. things. That's a really good question. And I, and I cut about 500 words out of this column. <laughs> kind of got into the weeds there. And I thought, this is just too much. I mean, critical race theory is an academic theory that has been around for decades. To me, it's a lot like a little bit earlier when postmodernism was in the air and Christians mm. were all denouncing postmodernism. Mm. They didn't know what it was. Yeah. They didn't know, you know, it was just sort of the boogeyman. And there are things about it that are to be rejected, but there are things about it that are correctives yeah. to what came before. Critical race theory is a lot like that. I'm not, it's not my area of expertise. I haven't studied it closely. I know it has some connections to Marxism and that, you know, that's something that I certainly, I mean, Personally, not just as a Christian, but as a human being, I I, I don't 
think Marxism is good. Um, but that's some, you know, people are just not, um, it's just, they're lumping them all together, mm-hmm. as you said, Brian. And systemic racism, the idea has become popularized because so much talk about critical race theory is in the air, but it really is a separate thing. This idea of, you know, of, of something being in our systems and in our culture for so long that we don't even recognize it. It's like that, mm. you know, that old proverb about the, um, the goldfish swimming around in in the bowl and one goes by and says, how's the water? And <laughs> the one goldfish says, what water? I mean, that's how culture works. We yeah. don't recognize what we're in. Um, we can, but it's just really hard. And we have to talk about these things and, mm-hmm. and be humble in doing so and listen to the perspectives of others who maybe yeah. are outside the water or drowning in the water or mm-hmm. have polluted water because um, because all of our experiences aren't the same. Mm, that's good. Karen, another thing that you do sort of subtly in this article is talk about how you learned years ago what abortion is, what it does to an unborn child and to the woman carrying the child. And a fire was lit in you, really a pro-life anti-abortion fire. And you make a connection between that and racism. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, that that is, again, a kind of a personal thing to me, because my strongest spiritual gift is prophecy. And not I don't mean telling the future, but just sort of telling the world what's right and what's wrong. Mm. Um, and so it actually doesn't feel like much of a choice to me. Um, when I first became pro-life, which was an instantaneous thing, I just became passionate about it. I spoke out about it. I protested against it. I volunteered in a crisis pregnancy. I just, you know, it was, it just was something I had to do. And for me, speaking out against the racism that still exists in our culture is a similar thing. I just, I just see it and I don't feel like I have a choice in being silent about it. And so that's not, everyone isn't that way. Mm -hmm. I get that. Um, But the comparison I was trying to draw in that article is that it's sort of, it's my own conservative right leaning Christian community that made me into this culture warrior through Mm -hmm. the issue of abortion. Yeah, And I'm, I mean, I'm, that is who I am and it's, you know, and, and, that I don't want to change a thing, but but that's why I'm just as passionate about this issue because they all bear, you know, whether it's abortion or the, you know, the excesses and the abuses of the sexual revolution or racism. These mm-hmm. are assaults on on the dignity of human beings made in yeah. God's image, and I just yeah. I'm. I'm just passionate about those things. Yeah, thank you for that. And Karen, with like the last minute we have, uh, we're really glad Karen's going to stay with us. We're going to talk about all sorts of other things with her. Uh, But all three of us uh, are in, you know, predominantly white churches. As you said, you kind of described your environment. What, What would you like to see the church right now, the evangelical, particularly white church, begin to do in the next year, would say, to to kind of move this ball forward? And and uh, well, yeah, what, what would you like to see happen within the church? I mean, that's a big question. And I, I think the first thing really that is something that we just have to listen to mm-hmm. other voices. We have to, again, recognize that we're in this water and not everyone's water is the same mm-hmm. and, and just be humble enough to hear what the experiences of others have been and to, to understand that just because the people worship differently or dress differently or speak differently or behave that that doesn't mean that their way is wrong and our way is right mm. those are cultural things and we just have to recognize that and once we do i mean then then the things we do in our churches will follow 
That's right. That's right. Karen Swallow Pryor, again, is a research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can read uh, and catch up with Karen at KarenSwallowPryor.com. Also on Twitter at KS Pryor. So glad to still have you with us. Speaking of podcasts, I did want to ask you, Aubrey and I have been kind of obsessed and talking about this uh, Christianity Today podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, because it it does so. It captures so much within that. I know we asked you off air if you've been listening to it. You said you have. I would just love to know kind of your thoughts. What are we learning from it? What is? What are you thinking as you're listening to this? Wow. Well, I I am learning a lot simply because I really wasn't in those circles in those years that are being described and didn't watch this happen. Although so many of my friends did, and and I, you know, it, it is just such a convergence of so many unhealthy things that are being revealed about evangelicalism right now, um, a young, immature person being placed in a position of power with no accountability. That's mm-hmm. that's certainly a thing that we need to avoid. Um, a, a sort of tapping, you know, tapping into a need in the world in worldly ways rather than biblical ways. Um, you know, uh, specifically, I would say like the issue of, of masculinity and manhood, which, you know, I think there are some some crisis points in our culture on on those issues but the church's response has to be biblical not like a counter cultural swing mm-hmm. um just to be countercultural yeah um and then just the other thing that is so interesting and really instructive is there were a lot of people who spoke up a lot of people who were wounded but there were a lot of people who had some power and influence who seemed to have been silent Mm -hmm. and to have not done enough early enough to prevent some of this, um, this incredible damage that was done. Mm -hmm. And um, Karen, I, this is maybe unfair because we're asking you just your opinion (laughs) about things, but uh, it feels like we're hearing more and more stories like that. Like people who actually were in power knew of some of the sin or some of the abuse in various Christian organizations, not just at Mars Hill. Why do you think that happens? Yeah, I mean, there are there are the obvious wrong reasons why that happens, whether it's greed or pride or, you know, those, and, and certainly those things play a part in all of this. But I think also we have to we have to to really make changes. We have to be more understanding and see how think ask how good people with good intentions can become complicit in these kinds of things. And I think the the biggest thing that I've seen, because I've been asking a lot of these questions among, you know, uh, people that I know, is that there's an, it's easy to rationalize the good that's being done Mm -hmm. um, and let the bad go on. That seems to be the prevailing thing. Like the gospel is being advanced. People's lives are being saved. It will hurt too many people to, for this thing to come crashing down. Um, it's really ultimately a pragmatism, mm. um, that is, defines our modern culture and unfortunately defines the church. And it is just, it is simply not God's way. It, it's very human to do that. And it's very human to be afraid of what, what might, be lost if we speak up or we change things, but it is just simply wrong. We somewhere along the way we have gotten completely off track in not understanding that we just simply have to do things God's way, mm. regardless of what's at stake. Oh, that's uh, so you describe it as getting off track. What is? How do we get back on track? M- might be one or two things. Maybe there's uh, you know church leaders listening right now and they're wrestling with this. What what would be some steps for us as the church to get back on track? 
Well, I certainly think there are small steps that can be taken even in big situations that are risky, that people are just not even willing to take that much risk. So I think there are lots of those kinds of things. And again, I'm being vague, but I'm speaking with very specific situations in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but even beyond, I mean, that's a start. And I don't see people even listening to podcasts like these. I know so many people who've just said that they don't want to listen because they don't want to know. Mm-hmm. And that's how these things continue. And then when we do know, take there there are small things that can be done that entail some risk but ultimately you how can we say we trust the lord when we're not willing to do what needs to be done and put and trust him for the outcome wow, mm-hmm. wow. that's what people are not doing and mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know how to tell people to do that except to just encourage them to do it yeah yeah wow that's such a such an important word for us. Okay, Karen, we want to ask you a fun question now. We'll take a turn here. So Brian and I were talking to you about uh, before we went on air, we're seeing lots of people post pictures in a t-shirt with your face on it. And um, <laughs> seems like the notorious KSP has almost become a meme in a really good way, a really fun way. Talk to us about that. What does that feel like? What is going on? Well, first of all, it's not my face, but it's <laughs> oh, okay. It, no, it, some, somebody went to Target a few months ago when the spring collection came out and saw there's a there's a whole designer series of these T-shirts with different faces on them. And one of the faces they say looks like me. Now, I'll take, <laughs> it looks like a younger, thinner version of me, but I'll, I'll take it. You'll take it. Yeah. Uh, and so... So the person who saw that, who's a fellow writer, Courtney Ellis, she just said, you know, could, she asked my permission. Could we just because we were still in the pandemic, you know, this yeah. is the spring. And she said, could we just take a fun day and encourage everyone to go out and get these shirts and wear them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and awesome. I said, yeah. And I said, you know, it is a fun shirt. I got one. Nice. Oh, um, but I and I said, well, let me use this event to focus attention not just on me, but on a ministry that I love. And sorry, guys, uh, you are second choice. But uh, I, <laughs> um, I used it. I just asked. I pointed people to Ecstasis Magazine, which is an art, a, a really young, new uh, arts and literary mm. uh, magazine that cool. I just wanted to support and love. So I thought, well, let's turn it into some love for for a great cause. Love and that. So it really was a lot of fun. And the t-shirts and pictures keep popping up. So, <laughs> um, so and I guess you, you wrote uh, n- another column a couple months ago about the social media examine life is not one that sustains us. I wonder, you probably didn't get into any of this to have a social media following, to have people you know reading you on Twitter and put, wearing t-shirts and this kind of stuff. <laughs> so how do you wrestle with that? And how would you encourage other people who maybe don't have a big following to wrestle with kind of the social media life versus, you know, kind of real life? Oh, goodness. I mean, one of the things I said in that article, and I really mean this, I am so thankful I was born and matured before the age of social media, mm. because I can't imagine growing up in this environment um, and, and having, you know, developing a sense of myself and identity and calling amidst all of these voices and these false visions. So that I, you know, I, I'm thankful that I was already established and old uh, before the rise <laughs> of social media. Um, but we really have to understand that, that even though real relationships can form there and so much good can happen, I would never deny that, that it cannot replace 
the flesh and blood, brick and mortar, earth and sky existence of our daily lives with real people. Hmm. Um, and so I just shared a little bit about how, because I do have a, you know, a growing social media platform and a, a writing career that kind of depends on that. But I just wanted to share people, this is not who I am and this is not hmm. what I love and care about. I mean, I just love being in my house with my books and my dogs and my husband yeah. and nobody knowing about those things. My husband's very private. He <laughs> does not like the social media thing. And that's my real life. That's my real love. And the mm. other things are our tools and they're fun and it's a gift. Um, but I, I don't want to build a life around that. Absolutely. That's a good word from Karen Swallow Pryor, research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, go to karenswallowpryor.com. You can check out all her books, including On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Also follow her on Twitter, uh, as we just discussed, at KS Pryor. That's at KS Pryor. Karen, it is always so fun. Thanks for being so generous with your time. We look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. If you've been around the show for a while, you know... Uh, we've got a couple of our uh, <laughs> we have a couple of our favorite guests. We'll put it that way. Our recurring guests who we like to call friends of the show, where you and I kind of look at each other, going, "I can't believe that person comes on our show on a regular basis." <laughs> we just had one of those people with Karen Swallow Pryor on the show, and another person who I think falls under that category is David French. So we'll call David, and he'll be like, "Yeah, sure, I'll come on." And so David is uh, he is editor, and you can read him at the Dispatch. And you'll, you, he's a great follow on Twitter and his blog at the dispatch is still the blog name that, uh, that we love the most. It's called the French press. So clever. And yeah. I mean, he could have failed a gun with like the French fry or something like that, but the French <laughs> press is a wonderful <laughs> thing. By the way, uh, totally off the subject. Are you a coffee drinker? Help me remember. Oh, well, I'm drinking coffee right now and it's the afternoon. I am a coffee lover. Although so, I, okay, let's be fair. I am a coffee creamer. Love her. <laughs> <laughs> you and my wife. You and my I wife. I love coffee creamer with a little bit of coffee. So the reason I ask you this is because uh, as I was watching the Today Show this morning, as I do, one of their leading stories is that the price of coffee is going through the roof right now. No. What is yes. it? I don't even know. See, I'm not a coffee drinker, so I don't even know. But, oh, you know, right. you, when you go back in the supply chain, much like a couple months ago, like there was like all these stories that randomly lumber was costing a yes, ton of money. Yes. Right now, coffee. So be watching. I, I don't know. I'm going to need to tell my wife, hey, it's time to uh, drink some water for the next couple months, I think. So, uh, no, yes. this isn't good. This yeah. isn't good. The price of coffee. I don't know if that's a short term thing or that's uh, for a little while here, but uh, it is worth watching. So anyway, at the French press, David French wrote this this week. Lost friendships break hearts and nations. We were hmm. not created for power and prosperity, but for community and fellowship. I want to lean into that line, Aubrey, right there. Okay. David says, we were not created. So he's talking about like our identity, our essence, like at our core. He's saying it. So he's not just talking about preference here. He's talking about uh, what is at our core. And I think a lot of times, especially in America, we t think about at our core, it's to 
be prosperous, right? Live, uh, live long and prosper <laughs> or, uh, like we, we, we want, and there's an individualism to it yeah, about, right. about prosperity. But David says, no, we are not at our core created for power and prosperity, which a lot of us mm. run after, but instead for community and fellowship. What do you think about that concept? Oh, I mean, I, I, you know, we see it. I think we see it scripturally that because God is a Trinitarian God, he created man and woman in his image that from the dawn of time, I mean, God designed us not to be alone. But then I also think we feel it, right? Like, especially after 2020, we get lonely, we get isolated, we get depressed um, because we need friends. We need each other in order to just, I don't know, give us courage and strength to face every new day. Mm -hmm. And the reason David brings this up is he actually retweets in his uh, post uh, in his blog a tweet from Tim Keller about the precipitous decline in friendships in our Hmm. culture. And so it's really a big deal. Close friendships are declining. And here's the caveat, especially for men. And the decline is precipitous. So here's a couple of them. Uh, so take women. The, this poll was from 1990 and then again in 2021 from an organization okay. called the Survey Center of Un-American Life. Uh, in 1990, uh, 28% of women said that they had 10 or more friends, right? Percentage okay. of uh, close friends, 10 or more. And this is not counting your relatives. So 10 or okay. more friends, that's a big deal. 28%, yeah. 13% said six to nine. Uh, and it kept going down. In 2021, okay. for women, uh, 10 or more friends, 11%, 13%, six or more. And the much higher numbers now are at no close friends. At no close friends in 1990 for women, it was 0%. Wow. Uh, answer that. And in 2021, 10%. So that's huh. a big deal. Yeah. And, and then you go to men in 1990, 40% of men said that they had 10 or more quote, close friends. Okay. Now, I would suggest that the bar for men with close friends is, is different, different than for, it is women. for women. Yeah, yeah, certainly. That's true. So 40% said they had 10 or more close friends, while only 3% said no close friends. Okay. Uh, and another 3% said one friend. In 2021, that number of 40% went down to 15%. Wow. While the no close friends went from 3% to 15%. Wow. And so on both men and women, but especially men, you're seeing, David says, this precipitous decline Hmm. in close friendships. And his point is this goes against exactly what we're made for. Like we're made for community. Uh, Aubrey, do those numbers, A, surprise you? And what do you think are the results of numbers like that? You know, I think if it hadn't been for the 2020 that we just all sort of survived barely, I would have been surprised. This doesn't surprise me thinking of the, about the pandemic and I uh, for a number of reasons. One, I think just the forced isolation, right? But mm-hmm. two, I think in that forced isolation because of all of the... Um, the white supremacy that we saw, the political unrest that we saw, the controversies over masks, unmasks, how we handle the vaccine, how we don't, you know, all of those controversies, 
weren't happening in person and community. They were happening online. And I think the enemy used that to kind of like whisper stories into our ears about our own friends. Like, oh, your friend, you think you know them, blah, 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 blah. And I really think the enemy used our time of isolation. I'm I'm sounding very pastoral here, but it's how I feel. Like the enemy used our time of isolation to cause division and that division has lasted. And I think that's why people feel like they don't have friends because lots of things throughout COVID, the enemy used to divide us rather than unite us. Yeah, fr- it's exactly what you said. French goes on to speak about something called faction friendships, which mm. are which are exactly what you said. Bubble friendships around passions and purpose, like around these very specific things, like you said, politics. Um, you know, only going to be friends with people in, of like faith. Only going to be politics of people of like. Uh, you know, st- standard of li- whatever else it might mm-hmm, be. And mm-hmm. he says, fraction, faction, not fraction, faction, faction friendships are fragile. They wow. depend on an extraordinary degree of agreement and conformity. Uh, friendships built up through the years of engagement in politics and activism can vanish in the blink of a tweet. What a, fa- a fabulous idea. It's exactly what you're saying. We need to get back to being able to be in community and friendships with people who aren't like us, don't look totally. like us, don't believe totally. like us, don't vote like us, maybe don't believe the same things about things yeah. like vaccines and yeah. other things that I do think uh, social media, like you said, has played a role in this. But man, I just wanted to bring that up more so to look at those numbers and go, that's scary. Yeah, uh, that's that, sad. That if he's right, that we're made for community and belonging and friendship, uh, then the trajectory within our culture is not a healthy one. And I would add and suggest it is probably not just true in our culture, but it is also true in our churches. So uh, something mm. to really worth wrestling over. Well, coming up next, Aubrey and I are going to start the next hour by talking about schools in the fall. What do we think as parents? Where do we think they are heading? We're going to have that conversation next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, even though it's summer, we're talking about school next fall. And we're having a conversation about calling, how we know what God has called us to do. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday evening. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. So, Brian, it's the middle of summer. It's the middle of July already, which is insane to me that it's almost July 15th. I can't believe we're here. Um, But... There's conversations happening all around the country about school in the fall. So uh, Chicago Public School District basically just said that they're going to adopt CDC guidance for students, meaning if students have been vaccinated, they don't have to wear a mask. If they haven't, they do. Um, California, we saw this kind of change, but Governor Newsom initially said that all students would wear masks. There was a lot of pushback and then he backed away and um, decided it was up to individual school boards to make that determination. And then the New York Times posted something last week saying that there's a large group of parents who want the option for their students to still engage in remote learning. So it seems like we've got school boards, cities, parents all over the place when it comes to school in the fall uh, post-COVID. So I would love to hear, Brian, what do you what do you just think? Like, what do you and uh, Carrie want for your kids in the fall? 
Oh, that's uh, that is a good question, because uh, this past school year was hard and my kids are a little bit older. So I have a uh, a daughter who's going to be a senior in high school this year, which is amazing. I cannot believe that's happening. Unbelievable. But I have a daughter who's going to be a senior in high school. I have another daughter who is going to be in the seventh grade and a son who is going to be in the eighth grade this year. Uh, And so that, you know, they're a little bit older. um, And this last school year was really hard. Mm. masks and remote and when are we going when don't we go uh so i'm to the point to be honest with you aubrey i would be more than comfortable sending my kids back to school without masks and i kind of hope that's the case Uh, it's not going to be the case i would guess especially in the younger ages because if even at best if these school districts are saying we're following cdc guidelines well kids under the age of 12 can't get vaccinated right and so i don't i don't see a pathway which i don't here's the deal when i look and i know there's going to be people who disagree with this when i look at the totality of covid right now right when i look at it i do not see evidence in my opinion, that kids are really at risk, uh, right, and that right. the risk is high enough in order to make them uh, jump through the hoops of masks and distancing and all this. Like there does come a point or is it can I say with 100 percent certainty that there's never a risk? No, but that's the case with everything in our lives. You know? And so yep. if it were up to me, no kids would be forced to wear masks right now and they'd go back to school as normal. I don't believe that's going to happen. But with my older kids, I hope that that does happen because they're above the age in which their vaccinations are yeah. possible, right, are yeah. open. And so, uh, you know, uh, I, you we're all waiting. We got emails from our kids' um, school district the other day saying, basically, we've seen the CDC guidelines in the I, you know, Illinois Department, IDPH as well, uh, mm-hmm. and we're reviewing and all of this stuff. I suspect that's where it's going to come down. They're going to adopt it, but it's still going to be pretty cautious, probably more cautious than I want. Uh, as for the people who want their kids to be fully remote, they're again, this is my opinion. There are schools that you could put your kids in that are fully remote schools. I yeah. think it's asking yeah. a lot to yeah. ask our public schools right now yeah. to take back on that burden of also allowing people to be remote. Uh, like there are, I have, fr- I have a friend uh, back in the day uh, from college, he literally teaches in an online school before COVID ever started. It was online mm. for other reasons. Right. You can find those. I think I think it's asking too much to ask our public school teachers and systems to also continue that uh, unless COVID, you know, reemerges this Delta variant and they right. feel like they need to go back hybrid. But I think as long as we're not hybrid, I think parents probably have to choose either put your kid in school or don't yeah. uh, and, and make your accommodations. You can homeschool. You can go to one of these online schools. But that's where I land. How about you and Kevin? What are, what are your feelings right now? Yeah, I mean, I think more than anything, we want our kids in school. We don't want remote learning anymore. This mm-hmm. article that the New York Times put out actually has some interesting uh, research around kids doing remote learning. Uh, it's, let me just read a couple of these yeah. to you. Rand Corporation, a research group, found that students attending remote classes learned less English, less math, less science than students attending in person. Another analysis by a research group uh, out of Harvard found that students achieved, um, uh, like their achievement lagged compared to students that were in class. Mm-hmm. A study in the Netherlands, this is interesting, found that students made little or no progress while learning from yes. home. 
individual teachers also say they notice the difference. And so I, I agree that I want my kids in school for the education, but also just for the social. Yes kind of regulations, like let's be with friends again. Let's learn social skills again. Let's even have recess with our friends. Like those things really matter. Um, in an ideal world, I hope they're not wearing masks at some point. My guess is like you, Brian, those who are younger are going back with masks. That's a bummer, but hey, we'll do it if it means people are protected. They're getting back in the classroom. And um, at some point, that won't last. That's yes. my hope that at some point the mask um, mandates will go away altogether. But I just want them back in. I mean, yeah. I think ultimately that's it. So it does look like at least they're going to be in class. And I hear you. I think it is unfair to expect the public school system to continue to offer both when there are online options all over the place, there are homeschool options all over the place. Um, you know, there there are ways to do it that's if right. that's really a passion of yours to have your school learn your student learn online. Um, Anyway, so it'll be interesting to see. I know like my oldest has been vaccinated, but my younger two are not there yet. And so um, that's going to be interesting with my middle son starting middle school. Um, At some point during the school year, he'll um, be able to be vaccinated. But I, you know, I don't know how it's going to happen for him. I'm guessing elementary schools, like you said, are going back yeah. mass. And I just wish people, I don't know, let me get on my soapbox. Like, yeah, the whole time here, and I get this is a loaded term, but we've been trying to say follow the science, right? And right. in the beginning of this, follow the science kind of uh, lent towards one belief system versus the other. And it feels, in my opinion, that that's kind of flipped. And I want to kind of be like, hey, still follow the science. And, and, the the data for kids and transmission and the dangers it's so uh low that that I do think for me and my opinion is just this now that what the kids are giving up by having to wear masks and be distant and like you said not have normal recess and not have lunch or whatever else is is greater than than what the danger is from mm, covid and i yeah, understand that yeah. there are people who are immunocompromised and different things yeah. but i think you can make uh, you could do things on an individual basis. Right now, it feels like we've gone from like, let's just minimize the risk to we're not going to do anything until the risks are eliminated. And I just don't understand that line of thinking. Like, Yeah, you can't live like that because then you'd have to do it for the flu. You have to do I it just for it. like everything. Yeah, Right, right. So I that's why I'm a believer that we should not be masking our kids at all right now, vaccinated or unvaccinated. I understand that you could disagree with that statement, but that's just kind of where I'm at now, including schools. And, you know, and I understand school boards uh, need to walk. They need to walk health lines. They also need to walk political lines. So I get that it's a complicated conversation. Right, Uh, right. She asked me my thoughts. That's where I am right now. There we go. There's Brian with his strong opinions. That's what you get paid the big bucks for, Brian. Big bucks, so thanks yes. for sharing that with us. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about a Burger King sign that went viral. This is actually a really interesting story. So stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon. I'm Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And uh, we have kind of an interesting story. This this went viral. A group of 
staff, I guess, left Burger King, quit Burger King um, in Nebraska. Is that right? Lincoln, Nebraska? Yeah, that's where it is. Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, Because they were being mistreated. And so they walked out of work. They put a sign on the Burger King emblem and it said, sorry, we quit or something like that. We're closed. We quit. Sorry for the inconvenience. It says we all quit. Sorry for the inconvenience. On that, you got a picture Burger King or McDonald's. They've got that sign with the, you know, they put letters in it. Yeah. uh, You know. And, and that's what they put there. So drivers driving by Burger King see it saying, we all quit. Sorry for the inconvenience. <laughs> so so anyway, this story went viral. I think it's so fascinating. We have an audio clip for you of uh, what happened there. So let's listen to that. I just gotten fed up with it. And, you know, employees were being run ragged and it wasn't fair to them. And I just felt like I couldn't do much more. So I gave them a two week notice. So... One of the other employees was there yesterday was their last day. So they had wanted to put the sign up and, you know, more or less as like a warning to the customers because we didn't know if they were going to be open or not because no one was communicating with us. We didn't even know if the staff that was going to be left, which was mainly night crew, was even going to have a job anymore. So they they wanted to put up a sign, you know, to say, you know, sorry, you know, there's really not going to be anybody here. And then just kind of a, a laugh to the upper management. And then so that got put up yesterday before open. And I didn't think anybody was really going to notice it because we had just did one sign. And then it went pretty crazy on Facebook. And I got a call from my upper management and they told me I needed to take it down. Okay, so I think this is fascinating on a number of levels, Brian. One, okay, I'll just shoot my questions at you. All right. One, why do you think this story went viral? I think everybody, well, uh, a couple different reasons, but A, I think people were surprised by it and it's kind of Mm. funny and you're like, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I do think there is, these people, it's helpful to know why they quit, right? They quit because... They'd been working in a kitchen with no air conditioning for weeks. And at one point, the kitchen reached over 90 degrees. Somebody ended up in the hospital. And the upper, upper management, corporate, was not helping them at all. They, in fact, were calling the babies and stuff. And so they all quit. And I think there's something about that kind of solidarity. We're Mm going to stand up to – I'm using air quotes here. We're going to stand up to the man. Yeah, Uh, We're going to do this in a public and funny way. Uh, I think there's something to that where people go, good for you, like standing right, up right. and go, they, these people just didn't quit because they wanted more money or this. They were like, listen, uh, this is not a safe or enjoyable or productive working environment. So we're going to do something about it. We're yeah. gone as opposed to we're just going to keep plugging along here. And so I think you've got kind of the shock value. You've got just the funny. The picture itself is just funny. And we it all is picture, funny. man, what would it be like to drive by that sign and see that? Like, I think we yes. all feel that. Yeah. But I think I think deep down, I think also there's people going, listen, these people were treated poorly. Good yeah. for them. You know, yeah. stick, it, stick it to Burger King for right. you know, treating them badly. So I think those are some of the reasons. What do you think? Why do you think it went viral? Yeah. I mean, I, I think for some of the same reasons, I think what was interesting in the clip that we listened to is that the employees were actually being sincere when they were saying sorry for the inconvenience. Like they weren't really weren't trying to inconvenience the customer, but they had just had enough. And so I'm with you. I think it's sort of an underdog story, right? Like we're out of here. If they're not going to take us seriously, then we are leaving. But I think what's also interesting is that it seems like the Burger King 
you know, upper management hasn't said anything yet. And so mm. I'm, I'm dying to hear when that comes out, what their response is going to be and how they're going to end up treating these employees. Um, okay. But this is another part of the question. I think Brian, like, do you think, okay, obviously working conditions are terrible. I, they should have quit. Like this was a power move for them. This was the right move. That said, is there a better way to quit a job? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I obviously yes. I, I do think a little bit of it depends on the job you're talking about. Okay, like, sure. Like if you and Kevin decide that you're going to leave Renewal Church, I don't think you should post it on Facebook or maybe in the church bulletin or something. <laughs> Put a you sign know? out in front of our right. church that says we quit. Right. Sorry for the inconvenience. So I think I think there is a little difference in the job itself, but I do think you know I think they felt like they wanted to send a message. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and so do I think there's a better way? Probably. Uh, but I think in this situation, they probably felt, A, they didn't have much investment. I, for me, it's a part of its investment, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, for me to leave my church in a flippant type of way is not helpful. And it's, it's, it's runs, it, it cuts a little deeper than probably leaving Burger King. But, uh, yeah, I, I think this is kind of, you know what? They, it seems like they tried. They tried to get their concerns dealt with. And they, and, I think they, they got the attention they wanted. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I think they tried to get their concerns dealt with. And they just, like you said, they not only didn't get back like, well, we are sorry for the inconvenience, but we can't do it. They just got ghosted by their upper management. <laughs> and so at that point, it seems like, right. you know what? If, we're you out. Appre- if you don't appreciate us, we're not going to give you the, uh, the two weeks notice. We're yeah, not going to yeah. give you, uh, you know, any of that. And, and I'm sure it worked a bit of a, um, a wake up call, if you will. It, it certainly did that. So I, I'm good with it. I think yeah. that, that they probably felt like this was a, if you're not going to show us any respect, we're not going to show you respect yeah, that, you, that yeah. people might think you deserve. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Okay. Here's what I want to know, Brian, have you ever quit a job? And if so, how did it go? You know what? I haven't quit a job in a long time and I do not have the, um, I do not have the personality to quit a job very well. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't like confrontation. And I'm also the type I also I've talked about this on the show before uh, leading something like a church. I also don't fire well. Like, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I don't like it. And I not that people like firing, but I also no. am like, oh, we can make this work. So with that said, there came a point where I quit. I worked at a video store in my hometown in New Jersey for like almost three oh, years. Oh, I miss video stores. Remember yep. video stores? Yep. It was, uh, <laughs> I, I lived in a town called Long Valley and this video store was, uh, creatively called Long Valley Video. And nice. uh, I worked nice. there for three years, two and a half, three years. <laughs> Brian, uh, wow. And eventually I quit that job because it was, uh, yeah, it just wasn't working anymore. Now I was also going to college soon, but it just wasn't. But I've, as an adult, to be honest with you, I've never quit a job because right out of college, I started working at Glen Ellen Bible Church and I left Glen Ellen Bible Church to start this church. Look so at that. I've never really, uh, I don't have any good quitting stories. How about you? I feel like you do. I feel like I do. You, I have you know. a great quitting story. I'll be quick about it. But my first job out of college was at an ad agency in downtown Chicago. Really? And I, you know, I was in the Wheaton bubble at Wheaton College. I, all my jobs were like babysitting or like working for my Christian friend's business owner. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep, yep, so this yep. is my first time at a job in like the world. And it shows you how naive I was growing up. I just didn't know what the world was like. And I mean, at this ad agency was highly competitive. 
there was a lot of things going on, like drinking in the workplace, talking no out way. to women, literally. I mean, this is very extreme and this could not happen in this day and age, but this was in the early 2000s. Men were watching pornography upstairs. Like it was bad and I couldn't handle it. And after about a month, just one afternoon at the end of the day, I grabbed all my stuff. I left and I never came back. I didn't even quit. I just walked out and never returned. <laughs> and my, really? my manager kept calling and calling and calling. And I i mean, this was very weak of me. I avoided the conversation. It was very immature. <laughs> I avoided <laughs> calls. I never, you know, never said, hey, I'm quitting. This is uncomfortable. Looking back now, I would have still quit, but I would have quit very differently than did. I you did you eventually talk to your manager? Never, 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 never. Like, in fact, I if, several years later, I saw her on an airplane and I don't think she would have remembered who I was, but I about died of like embarrassment. I did. <laughs> Yes, I did. <laughs> our uh, our producer is texting us right now. I did the Irish goodbye. That's literally what I did. I was just like, wow. <laughs> I never came back. So I would not follow my own example that now. That is but awesome. I yeah, it was. Uh, it, I've learned from that. Lesson. Well, all I, right. If I come ahead, to do Bryce. the show, if I come to do the show one day, two days, three days, and you're just not there, Peace I think out. we know what happened. I think that's I think my we're, Irish uh, goodbye. Yes, that's funny. That's a good story. All right. Well, anyway, there's power in numbers, and I like these people standing up for themselves. That's a great story. Well, coming up next, we have some very very sweet stories to share with you about. Um, honoring the elderly and reclaiming the past. You are not going to want to miss those. So stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We hope you're having a great afternoon, basically evening at this point. And uh, we're so glad that you're here with us. All right, Brian, I found these very cool stories about ways that different people are honoring past generations. And uh, before we go into them, I wanted to ask you, are your grandparents still around? No, no, none of oh, my grandparents so are. Sad. Yeah, yeah. We've now hit that age, right? Where yep. like, and neither are Carrie's, but Carrie's oldest grandma died like two years ago. Yeah. No, a year ago, a year ago, like 103 or something. No, so, are you serious? Yeah, yeah, really, really uh, crazy. But yeah, I had a great relationship with my grandparents all growing up, though, for sure. Yeah, my, uh, mine are also gone. My grandmother died about three years ago. And then my um, Kevin's grandpa died last summer. He was the oh, last wow. grandparent, last great grandparent around. And, uh, you know, it's always sad to see, of course, when you're close with your grandparents, see them go. But then to watch this generation beginning to die away is right, really right. sad. Um, there's there's people doing some incredible things to try to honor the past generations. I have two really cool stories, like I said. One, there's a group of musicians in Ireland, and uh, they're called the Song Collectors. Song Collectors Collective, I believe. Mm -hmm. They're traveling around Ireland, Scotland, and England as well, finding some of the elder singers, uh, folks that know old folk songs, folks mm. that even wrote some of the old folk songs. And they're cap capturing them on video and audio before this generation dies away so they don't lose some of that history. Cool. And um, I have a little audio for you here because I think the story is so powerful. So let's hear that. 
A lot of people think that there are no source singers left of very old songs, but we knew that that wasn't the case, and we wanted to allow these people to share those songs. So we quite simply went out and started making recordings of singers throughout Britain and Ireland, particularly those from the Irish and Scottish traveller communities, who have otherwise unknown songs and unknown knowledge about those songs. We got support from the Arts Council of Ireland, which allowed us to build a bespoke website to share the recordings and create profile pages to give credit to the singers or tradition bearers as we term them. We also make copies of the recordings, we give those back to the communities on CD as well as publishing them through various social media sites and we organise regular performances and education events to encourage people to make their own field recordings. In just a few short years, we have recorded dozens and dozens of singers and published recordings of hundreds of songs. However, we are pretty sure that we're still at the beginning of this project. I uh, was messing around on that website. It's Song Collectors Collective. You can listen to some of the songs. And I love this concept that they are not letting the older generation just yeah. fade away, right? There's something so powerful about honoring, remembering, recording history before it's gone. Um, and then there's this other story, Brian. I I could not watch this without crying. Um, <laughs> if you want to go to Good Morning America, you can find this video. But there's an African-American woman named Martha May Ophelia Moon Tucker, which I'm obsessed with that name. Martha May <laughs> Ophelia Moon Tucker, 94 years old. Okay. She got married in 1952. She always wanted to wear a wedding dress, but at the time, black women weren't allowed in bridal shops. And so she never got to wear a wedding dress, but her family took her wedding dress shopping at 94 years old. And there's this video of her just glowing. And she says, I'm getting married. And I mean, everyone in the room is crying. Like, it's so powerful to watch but why do you think this sort of honoring the past generations recording even reclaiming the past in these emotional ways why is this so important for us oh that's a great question because as a society i don't think we necessarily do well at this it's always what's next what's the new innovation what's new and people who hold on to the past are kind of um Look down upon, or they're mm-hmm. kind of what are y'all? What are you doing? Just trying to live in the past, right? But there's things in our past that are worth carrying on. And when we look at scripture, uh, you know, and especially in the Old Testament, you just see over and over again: write these things down, tell yeah. these things to your kids, pass these down. There's this reciting of history and this reciting of what is important. And then I would say. Uh, and so take the story about the Irish singers. Like there is, if they're not intentional about this they're going to be worse off as a culture because they're going to lose these old songs these things from their past but it takes work it takes this group going okay then we're going to take it upon us to go and carry this on you know we always talk about the greatest generation that is you know very quickly dying off here And then without some intentionality, we're going to lose that generation that fought in the world wars. That, right, that right. Did, that formed much of who we are as a culture. Or we can do the work to record their their thoughts and their words. And now we've got the technology to do so. And so I think uh, it, generationally, it is super important for us to still hold on to the things that uh, that make us who we are and carry them mm. on generation to generation. And within the church, that becomes important. Again, 
uh, are we societally have a problem of saying everything that's new is better. Everything's right, about innovation. Right. And there's nothing wrong with those. But there's also value in going, let us hear from our elders. Let yeah. us uh, sit under the wisdom of those who have been, uh, you know, Christians for 50 and 60 years. Mm-hmm. And, and I think right. we've got to we have to reclaim that. So, no, this is a powerful story of kind of making sure to hold on to that which is powerful, even as that generation dies off. I also think there's a there's another take, especially to the Martha May Ophelia Moon Tucker story. The fact that, you know, in her day and age, she actually couldn't walk into a bridal shop. Yes. And and there is something very powerful that her family decided to reclaim this painful, sinful moment in history and reclaim it for good by allowing her to revisit that long lost dream. Like, I think that's what makes me emotional about it. It's honoring her. It's honoring the um, next generation or the elder generation, as you talked about, but it's also like reclaiming the past. And I do think there's something really biblical about that as well, that we learn from the sins of the past and we do it better in the future. And I think that almost like breaks some spiritual chains that breaks Mm. some sin change and that starts a new day. And you, again, you see this video, the way she's beaming and the way her family is crying. Like you just see something so powerful there about redeeming what went wrong. Mm -hmm. And and even though it's been, you know, 40 years, 42 years later, she got her moment. And, you know, I I don't know. I, I don't really know how we do that in our life now. But I do think there are things in our own past or maybe in our, our ancestors past that were painful and wrong and terrible that somehow we can be intentional about honoring their pain and doing it differently. And mm-hmm. that creates a really good legacy as we're remembering to tell their stories, we tell a new story along with it. Yeah, and I think there's another takeaway for me in these stories, especially uh, the 94-year-old woman with the wedding dress. And that's this. A lot of times you think that by the time you're 94, you know, you're kind of done or, or our grandparents are done or whatever, experiencing new things, right? And, yeah, and for that's her good. Gra- for her grandkids to be like, you know what? We are going to give her this. Uh, mm. I'm sure she never thought this would ever happen. And the payoff for them is to see the joy in their Ugh. grandmother's face. The joy is just beaming. Yeah. And, uh, and and like you said, it doesn't right all the wrongs of the past, but it, it does give her this sense of of uh, wow, I got to I got to experience this. And so I do think I think I would sum it up this way. I think societally and as churches. We are too way, well, way too focused on youth. We are mm. way too focused on new. We are way too focused on quote unquote progress. And that yeah. while those things aren't bad, we have to temper them with what's our foundation. Yeah. Uh, listen to your elders. Who yeah. are the people who actually have wisdom? Yeah. Uh, good, and, and strike that balance. I think these types of stories remind us of that. Yeah, that's good. Well, coming up next, we're going to learn some lessons about calling and about passion from the Spelling Bee champ. Mm -hmm. She's 13 years old, first African-American to win the Spelling Bee. Lots to learn from her young wisdom. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are sending you home on Mm -hmm. Tuesday evening. Maybe you're already at home. Maybe you got plans to kick back on the couch tonight or take a walk with your family. Whatever you do, we hope it's a good evening for you. We wanted to end the show today with a very cool 
story from the latest Spelling Bee champ. She's mm-hmm. 13 years old. She's the first African-American ever to win the Spelling Bee, and it's been around since 1925. She was interviewed on Good Morning America talking about her discipline of mm-hmm. studying 13 thousand words a day let's go ahead and take a listen to that even though i do thirteen thousand words a day i I can't remember i don't remember all those words i kind of think of it as like a mental filing cabinet under term roots i'm hoping a lot of people see me and maybe uh, think about going into uh, spelling and general just education in general I've always been kind of good with words and stuff like I've read like a, like over a thousand books I'm sure at this point. So the spelling was kind of like an outcropping or like an outgrowth of like my love of words. Okay. I am so impressed with this gal. Did you know that she also holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the most basketballs yes. dribbled simultaneously? Well, what makes it crazy, first of all, her name is outstanding. It's Zalia Avant-Garde. Avant-Garde. I love uh, it. So what's amazing is she just won the competition for to be the best speller. Like she won the spe- the national yeah. spelling bee. Yes. And she's basically said her passion is basketball. And now <laughs> all these clips have come out. She holds multiple Guinness records for ball handling, like most balls dribbled at the same time. And she's a really good basketball player. Like if you watch her in some of these clips for a 13 year old, you're like, wow, she's got like like the beginnings of some skills that you could see kind of moving forward. So for someone to say. My passion is X, but I am the greatest at Y is, <laughs> is really pretty unbelievable. And yeah. she's got this beamingness to her, this smile. Yeah. She was at the ESPYs the other day. She's been getting interviewed all over the place. But yeah, that also, like you said, to study that many words a day and put in that kind of work as a 13-year-old uh, I mean, is pretty unbelievable. Such a cool story. I'd encourage people to Google Zalia Avant-Garde. Because uh, her story, even as a 13-year-old, is pretty remarkable. I mean, I, you know, I love my kids, but they're not spending the summer going over 13,000 words a day nope. or trying to break world records, right? They're just asking for more screen time. So I think they need to watch these videos <laughs> as well. But here's what I love about something she said. She talked about how she, she, you know, she's like, I studied these words. It's not that I remember them all, but I sort of just put them in filing cabinets in my mind throughout the day. And it's because I love words. And mm. she says how this, the spelling bee really was just a natural outflow of her love of words. And it got me thinking about when God calls us to something. We talk a lot about calling in the church and how do we know our calling? What has God called us to do? What has God made me for? And I actually think there's so much wisdom in what she says, because a lot of times I think we're looking for like signs about calling or we want it to be this big moment. God has called us to this thing. But oftentimes it is literally the things we're passionate about already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's uh, a mix of our personalities. It's um, part our life stories. And those things put together help us unearth what God has really gifted us and called us for. And so it's not really this big sort of like rocket science magical thing that happens. It's like you look at your life and you go, oh, I have a passion for this thing. Or, oh, this thing feels wrong to me. I want to make it right. Or, oh, I'm really curious about words or whatever it might be. God wants to use that for his glory in really powerful ways. Yeah, I think that 
when we when we obsess over what specifically has God called me to do, like we think about it, like I'm going to pray and then I'm going to look up in the sky and it's going to be written there for me. Right. Like yeah, go to grad yeah. school or whatever else it might be. Uh, when in reality, I think you frame it well. God's calling in our life often follows how he's wired us. Like what mm-hmm. are my passion? What are the passions God has already given yeah. me? And here's another point about calling. A lot of your calling has been defined in the Bible. Right. Uh, (laughs) Go and make go and make disciples. Uh, You can do that as a plumber. You can do that as a teacher, as a stay at home parent, as a pastor. All of our calling is to go and make disciples and to love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, mind and soul and to love my neighbor as myself. Like sometimes we skip over all of our general calling for that specific like. Where am I? What am I actually supposed to be doing? And God does speak those specific yeah. things to certain yeah. people, through people, through dreams, through other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes the frustration could be, what does God want me to do? And you want to be like, well, he already told you. Like it's, it's right <laughs> Go and make there. disciples. Right. And how right. you play that and then how you play that out, yes. I think becomes what are you what are the passions you have? How has God wired you? What are the opportunities before you? Like, what is God calling me to? I don't know, but what about that job that was just offered to you? Like, might that be you know, and there mm-hmm. sometimes we can overthink it is what I want to say is you know what? We know our general calling and, and what God has put us on this earth to do. And then he wires us like you're interested in things that I'm not interested in, yeah. vice versa. Yeah. Like maybe that's an indication I should run after those while you should run after these. And then mm-hmm. we can kind of flesh it out that way. I sometimes think the other thing, too, and we've talked about this a lot on the show, is we tend to be very individualistic in the West. And there's beautiful things about that, right? Like that individualist mindset helps us like start businesses and change the world. Like there's some really great things about it. Right. And, um, but sometimes I think even our calling can be communal. Like God has called a body of people to go and make disciples. God has called a group of people to go and change the neighborhood. God has called you and your friends to go right this wrong. And so sometimes I think if you're questioning like, God, what is the passion that you've given me? What is my version of Zalia Avant-Garde's passion for words and basketball? Like, what is that? Mm -hmm. You can ask your community, like, one, what do you see in me? What do you think God has gifted me for? But also, what has God called us as a group of people to do, as a church to do, as a small group to do, as a group of Christian friends to do? And realize that it may not only be this individual thing, but like there's a group of folks that God wants to use together to make a difference in That's this right. world. That's right. And so uh, there's the old saying of paralysis by analysis, right? Like we, could just be, <laughs> That's good. we could become paralyzed by, oh, what exactly does God want me to do? And you could be Hey, take a deep breath. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you what he wants you to do. And let's, I think your idea about community is helpful there too. Let's work it out together. Uh, and, and then we'll go from there. I think that's really helpful. Yeah, that's that's a good reminder for all Good way of us. to end the show. Good way to end the show. Hey, Brian, uh, it's only Tuesday, but you and I are going to be gone next week. Yes, we We're are. We're going to have some best of shows for you. Some of our favorite guests, some of our favorite stories, some of our favorite type top five list. You are not going to want to miss that. And But we will be back tomorrow with our regular show, and it's going to be a good one. We have Mike Cosper on so talking about, about our favorite podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's going to be great. So thanks for joining us today. Be sure to join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.